Amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. It's going to take me a little while to get used to that. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. This is the text that the Lord in his providence has us in this morning as we make our way verse by verse through 1 Thessalonians. And here we are in our second week of the letter, and I just have so much excitement for us to be instructed, encouraged, built up by this letter. And again, if you've missed the opening week of this series, make sure to go back to our website and listen. Um, Anyone I knew who missed this past week, whether they were serving or out of town, um, I was calling and texting Um, to make sure that they went back and listened because it was such a foundational message for this series, uh, an indispensable foundation to build upon. And uh, it helps us to establish all of the background and the context behind and within this particular letter. And, um, And so I want our people to know it. And I even encourage you, go back a second time if you have the time to, to see it and establish it in your mind. And um, this week, we really move into the content of this letter. The first week, obviously, is incredibly important. Uh, but we move now um, into the, a little bit of the meat of this letter after Paul introduces himself and his fellow ministers. So let's start, as we always do, by reading the text before us. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now we're going to stop there, and it seems like we're kind of have a cliff, cliffhanger right there, and we sort of do, but verse 4 serves as a bit of a transition as what I'll explain to you this morning. So in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, what we're seeing in these particular verses here is Paul express for himself and his fellow ministers thankfulness. Paul is expressing how thankful he and his fellow ministers are for this church that they planted and that has proven to be a genuine and true church. And he's expressing this thankfulness in prayer. So let me say this more concisely. This is the main point of these two, or I'm sorry, three verses Paul here is expressing how thankful he is. How thankful he and his fellow ministers are for this church who has proven to be a true church. Has proven to be a genuine church. They've proven to be a consecrated, excellent, faithful, submissive, obedient, evangelistic, faithful in in, uh, persecution, church. 
And he's expressing that thankfulness in prayer. In other words, Paul is expressing how thankful he, Timothy, and Silas are for this true church. He's expressing thankfulness. And so I've entitled this message, Thanksgiving for a True Church. Thanksgiving for a True Church. That's what's happening. And what is just as significant here, that's the main point, but what is just as significant here is that these ministers have been expressing this thankfulness to God. They're not just speaking into the air. They are expressing this thankfulness for this true church to God. In other words, Paul's expressing how these ministers have been constantly thanking God for this church in prayer. In prayer. These are prayerful men for this church. So I could really also title this message something like the pastoral prayers for a proven church. That would be equally true. Pastoral prayers for this proven church. We get an insight into the prayers of these pastors who are thanking God for this true and proven church. And I think that this thanksgiving, which I'll show you in a minute why, is the foundational focus here. The thanksgiving is the foundational focus. And it's expressed through prayer. But prayer is not the main focus. Thanksgiving is. They're thanksgiving. And this thanksgiving from these ministers, from these pastors, has been prompted by very specific, significant realities and qualities about this church. You say, well, why are they so thankful? and Why are they praying so much with thanksgiving for this church? Well, there's some very specific reasons that are prompting this great act of thankful prayer from these ministers. And so they are thanking God for some great realities about this church. And this had to just flow so naturally from these ministers as Paul's writing this. This is not flattery. This is not um, fabricated. This is flowing naturally from Paul's heart as he reflects upon this church that they planted. It had to have flown, uh, flowed out of him in a joyful, affectionate way from his heart as he thinks about this church. And so, by the way, this is typical of Paul. Paul expresses some form of thankfulness in the beginning of nearly all of his letters, except two of them, Galatians and 2 Corinthians, which are both highly corrective letters. Galatians, probably one of the most corrective letters because of the legalism that was happening in that church. And so really, to be honest, Paul really has not many reasons to be thankful for what's going on in that church. And 2 Corinthians, you know about the Corinthian church. And so those are very corrective letters. And apparently he's, at that point, doesn't have much to be thankful for, for that church. Even in the letter of 1 Corinthians, he expresses thankfulness in the very beginning. But here in 1 Thessalonians, this is very unique in his thanksgiving. His thanksgiving is expressed very uniquely here to this faithful, flourishing, true, consecrated, and proven church. Paul's thanksgiving here is wonderfully purposeful. It's unique. 
And remember why. Timothy had brought back such an encouraging report about this church. He had brought back such an encouraging report. And Paul and Timothy and Silas have been involved in, they've witnessed firsthand before they left. Remember, they were in Thessalonica. They planted it. They were forced to leave. They witnessed the fruit themselves before they were pushed out. And then they had to leave. And then Timothy brings back this encouraging report. And so they've seen and they've observed and they've heard about these wonderful characteristics about this great church. All of what they saw and heard about this church resulted in thanksgiving from its founding pastors, from its founding ministers. They could hardly contain themselves. This is the first thing he mentions here in the very beginning of this. He could hardly stop giving thanks to God because he's talking about how they do it constantly without ceasing. And they had joy and humility in their hearts because we know Paul will say even a little bit later, you're my joy and my crown. You're the, the diadem, the, the jewel on my crown that shows the faithfulness that I've been to the Lord. And, and that crown, to me, is, is going to be laid before God in faithful service to him. They're in amazement about what's true about this church. And so they express this thankfulness here. And, um, and I think that this is wonderful. I think this is so uh, insightful into the Apostle Paul's heart. Because as it's being explained, this thankfulness here, we see him express some things. We see also some things that are true about this church. He is thanking God for them for particular reasons. So we're going to uncover some things that are true about this church. What, what are they like? What's been their early history? What's been uh, what is their humility and their obedience and their faithfulness and their, and their outreach look like? This expresses humility because Paul is not thanking them per se. He's thanking God because he knows that God is the only one who could have made all of this happen. There's no way this could have happened. This church is young. There's persecution. We got pushed out by the crowds, by the, by the city officials. And yet this church is faithful. These people were rooted in Judaism. They, were, they had to be persuaded that the Christ, the one who died at the hands of the oppressors, was really the Messiah who came to save. This is full of encouragement. Because can you imagine as the Thessalonians heard this thankfulness from Paul's heart, how much it would encourage them, how much it would reinforce them and what they were doing here and the things that he mentions. So in this expression of thanksgiving, it's a multifunctional purpose. It's expressing what's true about them. It's expressing Paul's heart. It's expressing humility because only God could have done this. It's encouraging and praising and reinforcing this church to keep going in the attributes that Paul mentions here. And so there's wonderful details here, and I think it has a very relevant application for us. So listen, as we look at this Thanksgiving for a true church, here's how we're going to divide it, because I think it's the most faithful to the text, and I think you're going to see that. There's a little bit of technicality here that helps us to really interpret this rightly, I think. We can divide this matter into really one major heading, and then we're going to support it with three subheadings. 
The one major heading that we're going to see this morning is thanksgiving. As Paul gives this thanksgiving for a true church, really that's the main focus. And so we're going to see this expression of thanksgiving in verse 2, the beginning of it, 2a. And then subordinately underneath that, or we could say flowing out of that thanksgiving, there's three, really three particular aspects here. Praying in verse 2b, remembering in verse 3, and knowing in verse 4. Praying, remembering, and knowing. And I think that this is the most faithful way to describe what's going on here because I want to show you something here. In verse 2, if you look at verse 2, when he says, we give thanks to God, that's the only normal verb or finite verb there. And then what we see in verse 2b, mentioning you, that's a part, uh, uh, participle, so it's, it's describing the verb. It's modifying the verb. If I said, you walked into the house eating, how did you walk into the house? Well, you walked into the house eating. And so that's a participle. There's three participles in a row here. So we have the finite verb, give thanks, to give thanks. That's the main verb. And then we have mentioning. And then verse three, we have the next participle, remembering. That's also how he's giving thanks. And then we have in verse four, knowing. It really should be translated. In the ESV here, it says, for we know. It seems like it's almost a new thought. It's not. It's knowing. It's describing back the finite verb in verse 2, which is giving thanks. And so really, the idea here is we're giving thanks. How? Mentioning you. When? When we remember you. Remembering. Why? Knowing some particular things about you. And then verse 4 is going to serve as almost a transition because what he knows in verse 4, how does he know it? Well, that leads us into verses 5 through 10 where he's going to describe how he knows that they're chosen by God. And so it's a bit of a transition, but it really belongs in this section here. So with that being said, and hopefully that makes sense, we can start with this major heading of thanksgiving in verse 2a. This major heading of thanksgiving in verse 2a. It says here, Paul says, he writes on behalf of those who he's with, we give what? Thanks. We give thanks to God always for all of you. And that's where that idea ends here. We give thanks to God always for all of you. This is how Paul is starting his letter to them. After his introduction, this is how he's starting it. He's saying the very first words to them are, we give thanks to God always for all of you. That's a good translation there. What he's saying here is, is incredibly important. We are giving thanks. That's the present continuous tense here. It's the present tense. It's a sense of a continuous action. We, it, it, you, he's better to be said, we are giving thanks. Like now, currently, ongoing, this is our heart. We're giving thanks to God for you. And so even now, as he's writing, that thankfulness is coming out in the form of a prayer. But what he's speaking of here is really an ongoing, continuous heart of thanksgiving for this church. At all times, he says here, we give thanks to God always or all times concerning who, for who, for just some of us? Like, what about you know, those of us who are struggling a little bit. He particularly says here 
that we are giving thanks to God at all times concerning all of you. Concerning all of you. And so to give this little bit of a running start here, I really do want to take you back to verse one for just a second. So in your mind, make a mental kind of um, note here. We'll come back to this exact point of where we're leaving off here. But if we go back to verse one here, you got to think about what Paul has just finished saying here. He, he has just finished introducing himself and these, and these ministers And he's just finished giving this intentional, general but very intentional introduction and blessing that he wants for this true church. These are the called out ones. Listen now. These are the called out ones, the elect ones, the chosen ones. That's what he's saying here, literally, because he's calling them the church, ecclesia. And and the root of that is, is is the same root as the word that means chosen or elect, I mean, that's what the church is, ecclesia. It's the called out ones. It's the elect ones. It's the chosen ones. That, that's what it literally means. And so he is called, that's what he's thanking God for. That's what he's called them in verse one. This is who the letter is written to, the called out ones in Thessalonica. They're the chosen ones, the elected ones, the ones who are in God the Father. You're not in God the Father unless you're born again. And they're ones who have a union with God that cannot be altered. They're in God the Father. They're one with him. He in them and they in him. And they're in the Redeemer, Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, they, he uses the word, the, 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 the proper name here of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the sovereign divine Lord, Jesus, Yeshua, the idea of his humanity coming to earth, And Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who came to save as part of God's redemptive plan. I mean, this is the, this is who they are in. This is how they've been saved. This is who they are now. And so what does he want from them or for them? He wants grace and peace, grace and peace. And that's what he says at the end of verse one. He wants grace and peace. And really maybe I could, and, and really maybe I should just spend a, an entire week. We've already passed it, so we've, you've lucked out. But spend an entire week, really, on these two concepts that are very important. We could spend two weeks on these theological concepts. What is grace in the Scriptures? And what is peace in the Scriptures? We could spend two weeks here on these two concepts and do a bit of a systematic theological message. But as for now, as I mentioned last week, these are things that they've already experienced in salvation at a foundational level. They've experienced this because they're saved. They've experienced the saving grace of God, which is not by works. It can't be earned. They've experienced this because of God's own choice, not based on anything that they had done, but based upon his sovereign will. And you know what that's resulted in for this church? It's resulted in peace. At a foundational level, peace with God, right standing with God, relational fellowship, judicial fellowship, judicial standing, forgiveness, eternal life. And so this is what Paul is desiring here. He's expressing that they've experienced this, but he wants the ongoing effects of those two great realities to be true in their lives. 
They've already experienced this at a foundational salvific level, and now he is desiring that they experience this as the great benefits of salvation. That God's unmerited favor, the privileges of being redeemed by Christ, the privileges of being in his church, the privileges of being his called out ones, the ongoing benefits of being a believer in Christ, that you would experience the grace of God. Points where you just look and say, I know God is with me. I know his hand is upon me. I know his favor is with me. Because he's chosen to redeem me in Christ. And now I am on his side. He is on mine. His unmerited favor, his help, his mercy, his blessing in their lives as Christians. And that it would result in this ongoing peace in their hearts. You know, that's how you can have peace in your heart is that you recognize you're standing before God. If you want things more than you want right standing with God, if you deem things to be more important, like your job, your status, your pay, your trinkets, if you want those things more than you want God, then knowing you have right standing with God will have very little effect in your life. But if you deem the most important thing that you have right standing with God and will be with God for all of eternity and you have that through Christ and there's nothing else that's more important to you than that, you know what that will produce in your life? Peace. Because if you have him, you have it all. And so you see these people here, he wants them to live like that. He wants them to have that kind of peace. They want him, he wants them to see this great grace of God in their lives and that he wants it, them to, it, to produce this thankfulness, this contentment, this confidence in God. He wants them to, to have this trust, this understanding that they have everything they need in him and that it's evident because God is working in them and working through them. And so specifically, let's talk about why they even need this grace and this peace. It has very practical implications for them, particularly because as we talked about last week, they've had severe affliction. Paul wants this grace and peace to affirm them. They need this grace and peace to continue increasing in these great qualities that they already have, this godliness. Remember, he says, do this more and more. He wants this grace and peace to produce real things in them. But he certainly wants this grace and peace in their lives because they are enduring persecution. They're enduring persecution from both the Gentiles and the Jews in Thessalonica. And the, the persecution, listen now, is, is at the same level as what it was when Paul and Timothy and Silas were pushed out. And now this church is there and they're trying to walk with God and they're enduring what Paul and Timothy and Silas had endured before they left. They need grace. They need the grace of God to keep going. They need the grace of God to not be despondent, discouraged, afraid. They need the peace of God to know that he's with them. And the greatest thing that these enemies can do to them is kill them. And that only leads to their greatest blessing and joy, which is the presence of God. They need this grace and peace very practically. Remember when Jason was dragged out of their house, his house? We, we read it in Acts. And so were these young new believers. Can you imagine just coming to know Christ? What would happen to you? Would you turn if you just trusted in Christ and the very next week you're dragged out of your house? 
because of your profession of faith, would you turn away? They didn't. And that's going to keep happening. And they need grace and they need peace in the midst of this persecution. They need God in their, to direct their minds and their hearts to the hope of Christ. They need peace from God. And so this is what Paul wants for this church. Now, following this salutation from Paul, following these words, following these, what he wants from them, he goes and transitions into this great expression of thanksgiving to the praise of God for what God has already done in them. This expression of encouragement to this true church. And look at verse two again. He says, we. So though Paul is writing here, listen now, listen. Though Paul is writing here, he's writing on behalf of himself. He's writing on behalf of Silvanus. He's writing on behalf of, uh, uh, half of Timothy. These believers in Christ were pastored by these men. They wanted, uh, Paul wanted these uh, Timothy to go check in on them. And then he gets a great report and now these three men are thanking God for them. And this really reflects the attitude and the action of all three of these men, doesn't it? It shows these past, the pastors here, it shows their hearts. It shows what they want for this church. And what they want is their greatest benefit. They don't want anything to, to happen or befall this church. They want their good and so he says, we give thanks. We give thanks. And the verb here, Eucharisto, is, again, as I told you, present active. It's indicating this continuous action. Literally, we are continually thanking God for you. We keep on being thankful for you. This is a regular habit of us. This is a regular attitude of us. You want to know how we feel about you? We are so thankful for you. This is our regular attitude, our daily pattern, our heart continuously. And our thanksgiving here in verse 2 is directed towards God. It's directed towards God because he's the one who's done this. This couldn't have done, been, been done by any great work of us. It had to have been a divine result, divine activity. This is what God has done. It's what only he can do. And he has saved them. He has kept them. He is using them. The word, it says, Paul will say later, has sounded forth from this church to all over. You know what that means? This young church is sending missionaries out to proclaim the truth. This is a wonderful church who's faithful and sacrificing for the Lord. And so this had to have given this Thessalonian church such joy. Imagine hearing from Paul and Silas and Timothy. And imagine hearing these words from, from, the, from them. What joy, what confidence, what affirmation. And he says, and he's going to talk about here, he's thankful for God's choice of them. God's work in choosing them, keeping them, using them. Imagine how that made them feel. Wow. This apostle chosen by Jesus witness of the resurrected Jesus, confirmed by signs of an apostle, is writing to us and thanking God for our salvation. Wow, that's great. 
What, how, what a privilege. How humble they probably felt. How confident they felt that God was with them and God was behind them and God was, had saved them. And Paul goes on to say, we are thanking God at all times, at all times. It's not necessarily like an infinitely unbroken prayer. He was good, but I don't know about that good. Still man. But this was regular, consistent pattern and many times in many instances praying for this exceptional church. And he says, concerning all of you, for all of you, no one was excluded. He wasn't playing favorites here. This wasn't primarily because all the Thessalonians were maturing at the same rate. But why he's saying, I can thank God for all of you, is because the focus here is their salvation, at least in this initial portion of 1 Thessalonians. And so what he's primarily thanking God for is their election. He's saying, I can see it now. I've seen it. What's here, what's been shown to me, what's evident, what I care about. I was wondering if you were really, if your profession was true, if you were going to turn back, if you were going to be like some of the others who have professed to know Christ and turn back because of the persecution. The uh, thorns, it choked out the, the plant. But he's here thanking God because they have proven, this church has proven to be believers. They have proven to be believers. And that's what he cares about. He said, it's shown to me now that even before the foundation of the world, God chose, you're, you're born again. You're believers. You're in Christ. You're his people. And so this is why he could thank God for all of them. Because they were in Christ. They had received his salvation. God was working in them, had saved them, no matter each, uh, where each one was in their maturity. They had been truly saved through the gospel. And this is what they have proven to be true. How did they prove to be this? Well, we're going to see throughout the letter. They've proven to be true because they kept the faith. Since the three had left them and Timothy reported back to Paul, they had endured trial and persecution. They had become examples. They were sending out missionaries to the world to proclaim the gospel. They had not turned back. They were obedient. They weren't going back to their patterns of sin. I mean, all of these are the reasons. And so this is what Paul is saying now. Now, as we move to this next portion here, at this point, this is where Paul's overarching message in this section um, moves to the particulars. How is he giving thanks? Why is he giving thanks? What is prompting this thanksgiving? And this is what's happening in verse 2b and then 3 and 4. And if you see there in your text constantly, I think that goes with that next participle mentioning. So now we could say, if you have the ESV, it comes first, but we could say mentioning you in our prayers constantly. And so they're thankful to God. They're thanking God always for this true church, for their union with God, because they were born again, because they love him so much, because they had proved to be true disciples and followers of Jesus. And now he's saying here how he gives thanks. How do they give thanks? Well, we see here first by praying, by praying. 
And this is this next point here, this subpoint. What I'll say here is the, the participle is really making mention of you. That's what's describing the thanksgiving. How are you giving thanks? We're making mentioning of you, making mention of mention of you, but the participle phrase here is making mention of you by praying. And so that's the idea here. And so if you want to know how are these ministers thanking God for this church, they're doing so by what? Praying for them. That's just what Paul's saying here. It's not very complicated. It's not difficult to see. It's just exactly what he's saying. He's saying here, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. We give thanks to God always for all of you. How? What's the manner in which we're giving thanks to God for you in prayer? In our prayer life. This is what he's saying here. These ministers are thanking God for everyone in this church on a regular basis through making, mentioning, making mention of them in their prayers constantly. That's proof that they're thanking God for this church. Someone say, I thank God for you. Really? Are you praying for me? Do you thank God for me constantly in your prayers? This is the proof of their, the genuineness of their thanksgiving. This is the manner in which they are giving thanks for this church, expressing thanksgiving. That's the occasion of when their thanksgiving is happening through their prayers. And certainly they express this at other times, but their thanksgiving was happening in prayer. Now, what does this mean? It means, again, we can see here that this thanksgiving was given to God. It was given to God. Listen now, stay close. He's the one who enabled and enacted all that's happening in this church. He's the one who's done all of this. He's responsible for the Thessalonian conversion. He's responsible for their faithfulness and keeping them. He's responsible for their protection. And so these three men are praying constantly because they're thankful to God for what's happened in this church. It's amazing that these men, listen now, these men were men of intense service. I mean, intense service. Like, you think you're busy for the Lord? I mean, we saw it in Acts, didn't we, last week? Everywhere Paul went, he's just waiting for the rest of the ministers to come, and he can't help himself. He just starts evangelizing, right? He starts going the same routine, goes into the synagogue and starts persuading them that Jesus is the Christ. Then he goes out to the Gentiles. And these men are so busy. Their, their life is so intense. Their service is so regular. They're pouring themselves out so frequently. Their evangelism is so consistent. Their preaching is so intense. Their activity for the Lord is, is unceasing. And yet, you know Paul's not lying here. They found time to intercede with God on behalf of this church. Sometimes people say, well, I'm so busy that I haven't prayed. And I look here and I say, if Paul, in all that he does in his service to the Lord, is constantly praying, so are these other men, we should follow his example. 
In first and second Thessalonians alone, he speaks of prayer 13 times. Four times he's saying, I'm praying for you. Six times in the letter, he's actually praying. Two times he asks for prayers for him. And one time he instructs them how to pray. In these two letters, he talks about prayer 13 times. This man valued prayer. And you want to know what? That's probably why this church remained. I mean, God would do it, and God is going to do it in his divine plan, but he also ordains that our prayers are part of his plan. And our prayers are effective, and they have work. And it's probably the prayerfulness of these three men that was the catalyst for, these, uh, for this church's faithfulness. The prayers of thanksgiving for the Thessalonian church is the focus here. These men have proven prayerful for them because this church has proven to be faithful, has proven to be true. They had not walked away from the faith. They had not succumbed to hostility. They had grown in their maturity. They were saved. They were consecrated. They were excellent. They were obedient. Now, I keep saying that the thanksgiving here is in light of their choose, uh, of being chosen, their election, their salvation. Why do I keep saying that, that this is the primary focus here? And, and I, I want to just show you that, again, as I explained, verse 1 here, um, it says, to the church of God. And um, as we begin verse 3, in just a moment here, um, he's going to say, really why they're so thankful. And then in verse four, he's going to say, as I told you, knowing that you're the elect, you're the chosen ones, right? And so the idea here is this evidences of election will be in verses five through 10, but he's making mention in their, in his prayers because of some particular things, namely their salvation. And it's very important to understand this here because at this point, as we move into verse three, he's remembering something very, very particular. He's not just remembering like some like obscure things about this church. He's remembering the salvation of this church. He's already called them the church. And we're going to see some even more particulars about this in just a moment. So let's move to verse three here. He's remembering. Look at this. Verse three, he's making mention in their prayers. That's how these men are thanking God for this church. And when is this being prompted? When is this happening? When they remember some very specific things. What do they remember? Look at verse three. Remembering before our God and Father, there's three aspects here. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen. All of these are revolving around the issue of salvation. It's very clear what they're thanking God for. They're thanking God for the true salvation of this church. He's already called them a church, ecclesia, called out ones, elect ones, chosen ones. And now here, he's remembering specifics about them. And all these three specifics revolve around the idea of salvation. What's prompting this? This is key. This is key here. So let me get us into it. Look at verse three. Before we see these three aspects, he says, remembering before God, our God and father, literally what he's saying here is just in God's presence, in God's presence, right? This speaks really again of their prayerfulness. But can I say something here too? Listen, the, the, 
the, the um, character of Paul is questioned by some of the people in Thessalonica. They're saying, yeah, I know you're an apostle. Remember, he doesn't need to assert his authority of apostleship in the beginning of the letter. They know he's an apostle, but what they might be questioning here and what we see evidences of in this letter is his character, his love for them, his genuineness, his sincerity. That's what they are questioning, and Paul is going to vigorously defend himself in this letter in 1 Thessalonians. And so what what Paul is even saying here is when we are remembering specific things in the presence of God, our father, it even speaks to his sincerity. He's saying, even when no one's watching me, when it's just me and God, I am thanking God for you, for some very particular things about you, which show that I want your greatest good. And so this is great. He's speaking, listen, I'm, I'm, do, I'm thanking God for these things before God. No one else is seeing me. It's just me and God or us and God. And what are these evidences here? Well, first, look at this. He says the first aspect here for your work of faith. We thank God for you. When? In our prayers. For what? Well, we, when we remember your work of faith your work of faith. And literally what this means is this work produced by faith. This work produced by faith. This faith that works. This faith which has produced works. You have showed your faith by your what? Works. That's what I'm thanking God for. I thank God that since we left and what I observed about you, that even though you professed and we were wondering, is this going to be true? You have shown that you have sincere faith by your works. Your works are showing that your faith is real. This all revolves around the idea of salvation. And this is what Paul is, is thanking God for for saving them because their actions give proof to their regeneration. Their true saving faith in Christ resulted in the change in the person, the change in the people, the change in their character, their nature, their disposition, their deeds. Work here, the Greek word refers to a deeds accomplished or, a fun or, or functioning. It's something that's almost already been accomplished and established. It's something that's maybe not done in full, but is, is already established in them. The works that are happening within them because of the true faith in Christ. Paul is confident here of their election. He's thanking God for them in their prayers because their faith is producing righteous deeds in their lives and giving evidence of their true faith in Christ. Paul's not saying that salvation comes by what? Works. Because he tells us over and over again in the New Testament that that's not true. Throughout the New Testament, he makes it clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And both of those things, grace and faith, are gift from God. There's no room to boast. Right? But what is equally clear is that true saving faith will result in works. It will result in obedience. It will result in fruit. It will result in ministry. It will result in evangelism and discipleship. It will result in service. And that's very, very important for us to comprehend. 
I think we should take, all take a very good look at our fruit and say, what does my fruit say about the reality or lack thereof of my salvation? Now, it's direction, not perfection, but you also can't overlook yourself. Don't be blind to what's really happening in your lives. Ask some other people, what areas do I need to grow in? What areas am I not showing fruit? Some people, I think, look back to their profession of faith, and yet they have no involvement in the life of the church. They can't remember the last time they explicitly shared the gospel. They have areas of sin in their life that they're not willing to surrender to the Lord. And the list could go on. They hoard the resources, their financial resources. If they gave even a bare minimum of what, uh, of what they, could, they could give in their service and in their giving, God would use it in an unbelievable way. And yet they hoard it because their lives are the most important still. And I'll tell you, that's the fruit of someone who doesn't know Christ. And these people here in Thessalonica were giving their lives away for Christ. It was the proof that they had come to know who? Christ. This happens in every area of our lives when we're born again. This happens in every area. We surrender every area. It won't happen immediately, but we also can't just use that as an excuse for it to happen (laughs) uh, later on. And so what is Paul going to identify with them? I'm not making up these things here. Listen, Paul's going to identify in this letter their missionary work in verses one, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. He's going to identify that they turned from sin in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 9. He's going he's to identify their acts of goodness towards others in chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. He's going uh, to uh, speak of their loyalty to Christ in, this, in severe persecution in chapters 1, verse 6, and chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. I mean, I could go on. Their works are the evidence that they know Christ. And what does James say? In James 2, let's turn there, 8 through 18 through 19. Just turn to James for a minute. You guys already know this, don't you? James chapter 2. Verses 18 through 19 says, but some will say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith. What? By my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What's the difference between you and a demon? If you just know, but you've not give evidence that you believe by living completely for him. What about, what does Jesus say about faith and works? Let's turn to Matthew. Let's turn to Matthew. Chapter 13, verses 20, verse 23. Matthew 13, verse 23. If you're not there yet, you can just listen for a moment and mark it. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. And he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and in another 60 and in another 30. What about, what does John um, show us here also? Just one more here. Go to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Another familiar section. John chapter 15. This is regarding works and true salvation. 
regarding works and true salvation. John 15, I am the vine, the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may become, uh, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. This is talking about salvation, by the way. Um, He's saying here exactly what we're talking about. The one who shows uh, the, the evidences of salvation by their works is proof that they've been truly born again. And anyone who has truly been born again will give, will, will bear fruit. Verse seven, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you, what? Bear much, what? Fruit. And so prove to be, what? My disciples. And so this is the truth. Of anyone who is in Christ, they're not perfect yet, these Thessalonians. Listen, they're not perfect yet. You can turn back to 1 Thessalonians. This, they're not perfect yet, but they're healthy and they're flourishing. They're bearing fruit. They're showing evidences of their salvation. And this is what Paul is thanking God for. Now, what's the second thing, the second aspect here that really revolves around their salvation? He says, your work of faith and your what? Labor of love. Trying to find my way here. Labor of love. Now this is really, it's similar, but this takes it up a level and it's not the same. So if you think, well, he's trying to say the same thing here. He's not. Labor of love here, the, 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 the idea here, the, the word label, labor is, is more of the idea of toil And it's the toil that's produced by love, just like faith produces works, love produces labor in the real, in the genuine believer. Faith produces works, love produces labor. It produces toil. The evidences or fruit of salvation is that God is producing this great love in you. You see it. You're like, wow, I think that they're really saved. They're born again. I mean, you see the love in their life. Their heart has just changed so much and it's produced this labor, this toil, this service And this word here is different than ergon, which is the word for works. It's this word here, uh, koros, that means labor. And the idea here is that it it means, it focuses on the effort expended. It, it, It focuses on the energy, the strain. This strain, this wearisome toil to a maximum level. I thank God so much. We do, all of us, these ministers, in our prayers constantly before God because we see the evidence of your faith through your works and the evidence that God is producing this love in you through you just expending all of this energy in service to him. It's amazing. This extraordinary effort expended by you, motivated by the love that God is producing in your heart. They have shown proof that love, this fruit of salvation, right? Galatians 5, is there. How? How can you see it? You got an x-ray machine, a CT scan? How do you see this inside of us? 
Well, I don't see it inside of you. I see it outside of you. And it's proof that love exists inside of you. This extraordinary effort, this self-sacrifice, this self-sacrifice is shown, your genuine, your willingness, your genuine willingness to labor earnestly for the Lord. It proves that your love is real. Love for what? Your love for God. Some of you might wonder, how can I become motivated to serve the Lord? How can I become motivated to give my life, to give my energy, give my family, give my future, give my finances, give my fill in the blank for the Lord? Well, you want to know how? What Paul says here? that it's motivated by love. And so there's a root issue to maybe your lack of expending energy and effort and sacrificing yourself and expending all this wearisome toil. What's the root? Well, maybe the root is that there's a lack of love for God and a lack of love for others, but not for this church. They've shown their love for God. We're going to give all of this effort. Why? And we're tired. We're coming back to the tent at the end of the day. And we're exhausted. I mean, we can't even move because we've just labored so much for the Lord. Because why? We love the Lord and we love others. Love for others produces this service to others, this evangelism to others. This love for the church, the love for Christ, the love for his glory, the love for his mission the love for his people, the love for him and his gospel. This is what they had and they had it and Paul could see it because they were expending all of this energy all the time. You know what? I saw this yesterday in our service day. The people who were here, I mean, this place was just filled with people all over the place serving the Lord. And I know what motivates that. What motivates that is their love for the Lord. They're not getting any great recognition. They're not getting paid for it. Takes away from their time with their family for everybody. Takes away from, you know, we all got plans. But you know why they were here and did it? Because in their hearts, they love God. And in their hearts, they love others. They love the church. Not necessarily the building or the organization, but the people. And so they're here, laboring, toiling, Expending energy. And this is what this church was doing. And this is true about our evangelism. Why do we share our faith? Well, because you look at someone and you say, if, if, they aren't, if they don't come to know the gospel, they will spend an eternity apart from God in hell. And you can't enact that salvation. You can't control it. Only God can do the work, but you can share care and share And you love God and he tells you to do it. So you want to obey him. If you just do the bare minimum because you have to, there will be no expending an extra amount of effort. It'll just be as little as you can to get by. So Pastor Chad doesn't come over and yell at you. But if you love God and you love others, you'll do more than what's expected of you. And this is what they've shown. 
This was the evidence of their salvation. You know that's the evidence of people who really come to know Christ is that they love God and that they love others. Just look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. It says, but if anyone loves God, he is what? Known by God. People who know God and are known by God, what? Love God. Well, what about loving others? Look at what John says in 1 John. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. It says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. What about in chapter three, same book, verse 14? It says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we what? Love the brothers. That's proof of salvation. And it expends itself with this energy, this toil. Listen, these, this, can I tell you about this church in Thessalonica, why Paul was thanking for them? thanking God for them, they weren't saying, how little can I do to keep my life peaceful and organized and comfortable? He was thanking God for them because they loved God, they loved others as evidenced by the fact that they were literally giving their lives away at every moment for the service of the Lord. And so this is what he says. Now the third aspect here, is the steadfastness of hope. The steadfastness of hope. Go back to 1 Thessalonians. The steadfastness of hope. We're almost done here. 1 Thessalonians. Go back to chapter 1. He says here, and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks when? In our prayers. Why? When we, or, or when, or, or what's prompting this. When we remember your, your faith that has produced works, your labor that has produced love, or, or your love that has produced labor, and your steadfastness res resulting from your hope or your hope that has produced steadfastness. Now listen now, this is important, okay? This uh, Greek word here for steadfastness is different than what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 on Easter Sunday, which meant to be seated. This word here conveys the idea of endurance or perseverance, literally staying under pressure. Staying under pressure. And what was their hope? Their hope was in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it produced a steadfastness. That's easy to see, but that's characteristic of a believer. You don't walk away from the faith because your hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your hope is in that he's true. Your hope is that he's going to return as he's going to teach about throughout the rest of this book. Your hope is, is in his coming. Your hope is in his future glory. Your hope is in your eternal inheritance. And so no matter how difficult things get, you don't leave. Why? Because your hope is in the future. If I just hang on tight, it doesn't need to look pretty. But if I just hold on, I'll receive the reward that Christ has promised me. That's the proof of their salvation. They're not leaving. Why? Because things are easy? No, because they have a future hope. 
That's the sign of, of true believers. Their faith produces works. Their love produces labor. And their hope in the future produces this great steadfastness, this persevering and enduring under great trial. Because they know the gospel's true. That's exactly what Paul is, and these men are thanking God for. Now to wrap this up, it's amazing. It's amazing with this idea here that Paul had taught these young believers about eschatology. You would say, well, that's an advanced doctrine. We don't know very much about it. We can't really put our finger on it. We know very little. No, it's an essential doctrine that is very clear. Paul's going to make it clear and that has very practical implications for our lives. I mean, this church is not very old. By the time Paul left there, it had only been a few months. By the time he's writing this letter, maybe eight, nine months. And that's after they leave. They go somewhere else. Timothy goes. He comes back, etc. So this doctrine of eschatology really, really has given them hope. This hope in the future erodes discouragement. It enables the believer to continue. Now, no matter how seemingly hopeless your situation seems, because you know your future, your future hope. You know that no matter how heavy the current hardships and persecutions are, that you will eventually, listen now, you will eventually triumph over the struggles of this life. And so you're energized to wait patiently for the expectant return of Christ from heaven. And so, listen, I'm only mentioning number three in a minute. So, or uh, um, I'm sorry, the next part in verse four. Knowing, yeah, number three. But I just want to close this one up here. Listen, these major elements so far are the reason why Paul is giving thanksgiving to God for this church. He's remembering them in prayer because of their faith that has produced works, their love that has produced labor, and their hope that has produced steadfastness. Now, by the way, you probably recognized it by now, but these three, faith, hope, and what? Love are Paul's favorite Christian virtues. He mentions them together, not only here, but in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. I mean, it's just very obvious. I mean, look, just look at it real quick. Chapter 5, verse 8, just one page over. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of what? Faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. He mentions it in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 13, Galatians 5, Colossians 1. They had these basic, essential Christian virtues, and they showed evidence that they had them through their works, their effort, and their perseverance. Now, just to mention this last participle here, knowing. That's how verse 4 should read. Knowing, and it's still connected to giving thanks. So they give thanks in prayer when they remember these proofs of salvation because they know something about this church. What is it that they know? 
Well, I just want to mention it here because we're going to cover it next week when we move into this next section. It, it serves as really kind of a transition here. But it first belongs to this section in verses two through three. What do they know? Well, he says, knowing brothers, that's a general term. It means those who are in Christ, those who are saved. It can mean both men and women here. Loved by God, these men, these women, this church is loved by God. Knowing this, this is why they're giving thanks, that he has what? What? Chosen you. He's chosen you. And so knowing, this is what this, the word here, eklogen, and you can hear it, eklogen. It, it, it's the same root there as what? Ecclesia, the chosen ones, the, the called ones, the elected ones. And that's what this means here. What is the church? The church is the elect ones, the called out ones, the saved ones, the born again ones, the chosen ones. And what he's saying here is we know, brothers, when we are praying, we're so overjoyed, it's prompting our prayers because we know that God has chosen you. And so God's election of these believers to eternal life is what is also prompting Paul's prayers. Now listen, last thing here. You say, well, how can he know this? How can he know that they're saved? Is this, the, is this the gift that only the apostle has? No, it's actually very practical. Because in verse five, he's gonna kind of, as I told you, verse four is a transition. It goes with the first verses two through three, but also goes with the next section in verse five. It kind of transitions us. But he said, we know brothers, or knowing, this is why we give thanks to you brothers, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. And then he moves right into this next part here. What, what does he say next in verse five? Because. How do you know this, Paul? We know because. And he's going to give this list in verse 5 through 10 of all these great attributes about this church that prove that they are elect, chosen by God. And so as we close today, this is how Paul opens up the letter. He's saying, we are continually thanking God for this church. When? In our prayers. What's prompting it? We've seen your true salvation, your faith that has produced works, your love that has produced labor, your hope that has produced a steadfastness. Those are virtues of Christians. Knowing, this is what also is prompting our prayers, that you are chosen, elect, saved by God. All of this thanksgiving revolves around salvation. And they are so thankful for this excellent, saved church. Let's pray. <sighs> Father, we come, and there is so much here, but we have such a great hope and such a great example. Let us be, let us be encouraged by this. I feel the same way about our church that we have really proven to be called by you, to be saved by you. Of course, I can't see into hearts, but God, the fruit of salvation is there. But help us, God, not to settle. Help us to show this more and more as Paul will express to the Thessalonian church so that we 
in our evidences of salvation only show to be more and more faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.